0: Well, hello out there to anyone listening. This is Onion Ring Sasquatch, ORS at the Movies coming at you once again. This is the movie review podcast that says, you give a kid a cookie, they'll do shit for you. This is your host, your homeboy, G-Money Clip, and with me as always, my homeboy, Thornton Mellon. My homeboy. uh... Yeah, your kid was the one that said that, by the way. You give a kid a cookie, they'll do shit for you. Okay. (laughs) It was in our uh, Burdemic review. It's... It's interesting. It's been a while since I had you over here. Yeah. The last one we did was Caveman, mm-hmm. a movie which you thought was funny, and I thought what Mark David Chapman did was funnier. <laughs> and <laughs> when I hear you laughing at stuff I say, it sort of makes me question my own existence now, so <laughs> it's a little slow getting back in. <laughs> yeah, we yeah, got to- to uh, catch up on the stuff you've done with the kids in the cracks. You should. That Birdemic one was a lot of fun. Ah, if you're listening to our voices, you can see video versions of our podcasts up on YouTube, Rumble, and Odyssey. Just finally got around to finishing one from the blob, which means it's only about, oh, a year between videos at this point. You can reach out to us and get a hold of us at email at ors at themovies at gmail.com or reach out on X, formerly known as Twitter, at the G Money Clip. Because, you know, when you wait 16 years to join a social media platform, someone's already taken G Money Clip. What, Interesting. What are the odds? I didn't know you were a twit. <laughs> Shut up! It's an X now or something. <laughs> and yeah, we did have a little bit of feedback from uh, some of our prior episodes. So We got one that just came up on the blob on the video we put up. Oh yeah? This is from As Pooped by Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> he pointed out that in the movie theater scene, the girl laying on the floor with the half-melted face, you actually see her at the beginning of the movie. She's one of the cheerleaders. And you see a shot of her next to Shawnee Smith. I had to go back and look because it's real quick. But the eyeglasses are the uh, dead giveaway there in that Ah. one. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And we got one for our Birdemic review. Someone pointed out, one of our listeners mentioned that there are parrots in the San Francisco Bay Area. You weren't here for that one. But the kids and I expressed some incredulity at seeing parrots flapping around in a scene where they leave a Vietnamese restaurant and I was like, there aren't parrots in California. They aren't from California. They're not indigenous to California. Well, it turns out they do have parrots there because some asshole let them out of a pet store or something back in the 80s. <laughs> and now there are flocks of parrots that flap around in different parts of San Fran. But I do stand by what I said. They are not indigenous. I was going to say, that's to how California. invasive species work. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of what happened. But yes, there are parrots in San Francisco. So score one for Birdemic, I guess. <laughs> And uh, you had something that uh, somebody wrote.
1: My friend Tony, it's got to be like Inbred Monkeys fans that would watch our, our head review. Well, uh, at least
0: somebody did. Yeah, somebody somebody watched it.
1: He said uh, he thought I added some insightful commentary and pointed out things that he hadn't even noticed.
0: That's it? No, sorry, I wasn't prepared. Oh. I was trying to have it ready for <laughs> you there, so we have to edit this later. Edit? Oh no, what's that? Yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh, he said that uh, one aspect he agreed with was that there wasn't any songs on the soundtrack that were really top 40 material, but he disagreed with you uh, that none of the songs really stood out. He uh, he appreciated how I stood up for the quality of the soundtrack and that these songs definitely stood out to him in a way that many of the hits do not.
0: Well, fuck that guy. That's <laughs> nah, all right. Hell, I don't care. Go ahead and disagree with me. I don't mind. Go ahead and send us an email or reach out on X Twitter or whatever the thing is. Yeah, let us know. Send us your questions, comments, snide remarks, anything like that. It's it's fun. Before we even get started with anything else, spoiler alerts for the movie ahead, and just about any other movie we discuss. We will be wrecking this movie. If you haven't seen it, this time we are talking about Creepshow from 1982. I strongly suggest that you watch the movie first, and then listen to Two Idiots bitch about it in someone's basement. Have
1: you had listeners come back and like be upset because
0: you spoiled... A movie they hadn't seen, and now it's ruined for them? No, you would need listeners for that. Oh. So <laughs> that hasn't been an issue yet. Creepshow. I first saw this, I think I was about eight years old. My uncle had this on RCA Video Disc. Oh, wow. If Do you remember those at all? I, I remember they existed. I never had any. Those are laser yeah, discs. Or, yeah. yeah, they're different from laser discs. They came in these big plastic cases. And essentially, I found out many, many years later, the way they worked is instead of being read by a laser, the discs were read by a stylus. So it was like a record player for movies. Oh, wow. And like records, they could also get scratched if they got worn out and old and would just start skipping all over the place. The technology had been sort of developed in the 60s, didn't get released until the early 80s. So by the time it came out, it was already obsolete. (laughs) And uh, because RCA just had already sunk so much money into it, you had the old sunken cost fallacy, and they kept going with it, and uh-huh. they kept making discs until about 1986, and I think it was estimated that they lost hundreds of millions of dollars oh, wow. on this whole project, and that's why they got bought out. I remember hearing
1: about those, but I never knew how they worked. Or
0: They had like 60 minutes on a side, so you would always invariably have to take the disc and... It came in a plastic case. You would put the case in, mm-hmm. pull the case out while the disc stayed inside, and then you would have to go in, get it, flip it, put it back right. in to well, play they the other like side.
1: 3.5 floppy disks, didn't they?
0: Oh, they were huge. Yeah. yeah. They were like the size of records, but like the thick plastic cases. Yeah, right, right. And uh, you can see them if you go to like Half Price Books or something. They, they have them, it's like where people are selling them. I don't know who would buy them, who would have <laughs> working equipment for them, but doesn't stop some people from getting whatever. But, yeah, any movie you had, you would have to flip the thing. And if it was over two hours, it came on two discs. Okay. So it was the same thing as if you had, like, a movie on two VHS tapes back right. in the day.
1: <laughs> what a story, Mark.
0: Long way around to get to the point that he had it on video disc. So I saw it way back, you know, I'd be over at my cousin's house. And we'd sit there and watch that to a point, sure. and we'll get to that.
1: Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, this would have been something to see on HBO at some point over the time in the mid-late 80s.
0: Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. How old were you when you saw it first time, do you I, think? I don't even remember. 10, 11, 12? Okay. Yeah, this would have been about 1983 when uh, he had that disc. So to talk about Creepshow, we've really got to talk about the the driving forces behind it. The first one being George Romero. And George Romero is a, a guy who's pretty interesting as a filmmaker. He went to what was then called the Carnegie Institute of Technology which a few years later was renamed Carnegie Mellon, no relation, in uh, Pittsburgh. And after he graduated, he started making commercials and short films. And one of his first paying gigs was actually his one of his first horror movies, uh, Mr. Rogers Gets a Tonsillectomy.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: I'm not kidding. Mr. Rogers Neighborhoods filmed in Pittsburgh. Oh. He was one of those guys, whenever they would do the picture thing on the wall, and show you how crayons are made or whatever. Yeah. He was one of the guys who went out and shot those movies from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Okay. And he shot the film of him in the hospital getting a tonsillectomy. And he George Romero said he was legitimately terrified making that movie because it was like his first big sort of thing. He's filming in a hospital, had no idea what he was doing at that point. And he was working for a company called Layton Image, and they made television commercials. That was way back in 1966, and after a few years of doing that, he felt like he and his crew had enough experience where they would be able to make their own movie. So he got nine of his friends and other folks in the industry in Pittsburgh. They formed a company called Image 10. Each of them pitched in $6,000, so they started with like a nest of 60000 bucks and went out to make what would become Night of the Living Dead.
1: Oh, okay, yeah, yeah.
0: They had to take breaks every so often to raise more money, and they ended up getting about $125,000 all told, which would be about $1.1 million in today's funny money. And one of the funny stories, going back to the Mr. Rogers thing, he wanted the actress who played Lady Aberlin in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood to be either Barbara or Judy in Night of the Living Dead, depending on when you ask him. He gave different characters that he had wanted her to play, so I'm not sure which one exactly. Okay. And Mr. Rogers was like, no! 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 Not this fucking time! No fucking way! No fucking way! No fucking way! No fucking way! You made me look a right cunt. He was very protective of his show. He didn't want kids to see her talking to Daniel Tiger one day and then go out to the movies and see her smashing a zombie's head in with a sledgehammer or something. <laughs> think that
1: would have been bad for the show?
0: that eh, maybe. Send
1: the wrong message. It didn't hurt
0: there. her too bad. She stayed with the show the entire time it was on, like all 33 seasons or yeah. something. But that was amusing to me. So they shot Night of the Living Dead in and around Evans City, Pennsylvania. And that was released October 4th, 1968. And eventually grossed about $30 million worldwide. And that's over maybe about a ten-year period because movie releases were handled a lot differently back then, which is the equivalent of uh, two hundred and sixty-four point seven million.
1: Well, that's pretty impressive.
0: Yeah, they did pretty well with that one, although they had some issues with the copyright on it because originally the movie was going to be called Night of the Flesh Eaters. Oh, okay. Because there was another movie around that time that was called like something or other of the Living Dead, or they were avoiding that, but then they decided to switch it, call it Night of the Living Dead. Well, when they replaced the title, they forgot to put the copyright on the film. And according to the copyright law of the time, if you didn't have the copyright thing on the film... It wasn't copyrighted. Oh, interesting. So the movie, after its release, was in the public domain. Wow. Which is why you can go into any video store and any bozo can sell a copy of Night of the Living Dead. They can just take whatever garbage print they have laying around and just slap it on a VHS. And George Romero and all the guys don't see a penny from that stuff. Wow. So I never
1: heard that story. That's interesting. Yeah.
0: If you look around, there's all sorts of like... Mill Creek and Dick Weed Entertainment or something are putting out their own copies of *The Night of the Living Dead*. And the only time that any of the guys get money from it is when they actually are involved in the making of one of those things. Like okay. They, they uh, did a DVD. Oh gosh, on maybe 20 years ago or something that had like a whole bunch of extra features and commentaries and okay, stuff. Yeah, yeah. So it's like sales of that they would get benefits from, but all those other ones, not so much. Wow. With Night of the Living Dead, it's really hard to overstate just how influential that movie is, because it completely revolutionized the whole zombie genre. Right. Even though in the movie, it's like the Ewoks, the word zombie is never used, but everybody knows it's a zombie movie. Yeah. Because before that, it was, anytime you saw a zombie in the movie, it was like they were on some Caribbean island, and it was some voodoo ritual bringing somebody back to life. And in this case, it was just people coming back from the dead and wandering around, and there was, you know, no voodoo stuff with it. You got to shoot them in the head to get rid of them. It created like all the modern zombie tropes in that movie that are still going on. You see, The Walking Dead is still using what they call Romero style zombies. Just about everything that's come out zombie related, if you see slow zombies staggering around, is due to the influence of Night of the Living Dead. Now, the movie came out about a year before the MPAA put their rating system into place. Okay. So it's one of those things where it had, at the time, just like a shocking amount of blood and gore and, you know, zombies munching on people's innards and all sorts of crazy stuff. It's interesting with Romero. He never felt the need to go Hollywood. He just stayed local because he did make enough money off of Night of the Living Dead. It was one of those things where he just, I could go Hollywood or I could stay here in Pittsburgh. I got this crew of people I'm used to working with. we we'll just get some local actors and I'll just write the scripts and we'll do, I'll do whatever I want to do. And because we don't have big stars in the movie, it's one of those things where the budget's so low, if it right. hits, great. If it doesn't, we're not out a ton of money and was able to keep his artistic freedom that way. So, yeah, most of his stuff is shot in and around Pittsburgh. He had another scary movie that he filmed in uh, 1974, O.J. Simpson, Juice on the Loose. <laughs> it was uh, a documentary covering O.J. Simpson's 1973 season where he ran for 2,000 yards And Vidmark in nineteen ninety four dug it up to re-release it because there was a lot going on with O. J. Simpson in nineteen
1: (laughs) ninety-four. The movie was ahead of its time, title and all.
0: Yeah, Juice on the loose. They figured, man, that's terrifying in nineteen ninety-four. We gotta get this out. Directed by George Romero. There you go. But you know, I'm I'm sure he's still working tirelessly to find the real killers. (laughs) Almost thirty years later. (laughs) They gotta be on this golf course somewhere. So he made several movies in between Night of the Living Dead and his next big hit, Dawn of the Dead. None of them really took off, but again, they didn't cost very much. In 1979, Dawn of the Dead cost about $640,000, or $3.2 at that time, or in our time, I should say, and earned a worldwide return of $66 million, which would be about $279 million. Yeah. And it just further solidified him as a master of the horror genre. It's like his zombie movies, way bigger than anything else he's done.
1: Yeah.
0: And... It's like, you know, if you've got one big hit, you can keep kind of rolling off of that. So, yeah, I can make ten movies that don't do a lot, but I got that one that hit, and right. it's paying for everything else, and I'm not hurting for money. Do you remember to copyright that one, Dawn of the Dead? Oh, yeah.
1: You did it right that time.
0: They did it right that time, yeah. <laughs> they did not make the same mistake twice. That leads us into the other driving force in this one. Uh, Stephen King, the horror author who graduated in 1971 from the University of Maine with a B.A. in English.
1: I've heard of that guy.
0: I've heard of a BA in English. Somebody actually made a living off of that? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. He actually had a teaching certificate and turned to writing because he didn't get a teaching job right away. So he had been working on stories while he was looking for work and he was selling them to like men's magazines. Once he had gotten a teaching job, he was writing some novels. The fourth novel he wrote was the first one he got published. Oh, okay. Carrie back in 1973. And then he had after that, string after string of novels, Salem's Lot. The Shining, The Stand, and that kind of leads into when he meets George Romero in 1977. Romero was showing his vampire movie, Martin, at what was going to become, at some point in time, the Sundance Film Festival. Oh, okay. And there were Warner Brothers executives there. They saw it and said he should meet Stephen King, because they had just bought the rights to Salem's Lot, which was the vampire story. The modern uh, studio executive thinking is, hey this guy just made a vampire movie. We just bought a vampire book. We
1: have to get these two together.
0: So what happened eventually is that Warner Brothers decided they were going to do Salem's Lot for television. They figured it was just going to be too long as a feature film. We can spread it out over a couple nights on TV. They got Toby Hooper to direct it, the guy who did Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And nothing came from Romero on that project, but he and Stephen King hit it off. And a little while later, they were looking at making King's book, The Stand, into a movie. That's an interesting
1: decision to do that with Salem's Lot at the time, though, because you would have been so constrained with what you could do on television. I mean, yeah. even today, you'd be constrained on what you could do on TV versus something that you could do on film. But, but again, then, in the 70s, that would have been even so much harder.
0: Yeah, but you're looking at, okay, this is a big book we got to either cut it down to a two hour movie or we can make it like four hours long right? and put more detail in and stuff. Even if we can't show as much blood and gore and whatever else on, sure. on TV, I think they were just kind of looking to do the story justice as much as they could. Gotcha. Which is kind of what happened with the stand because George Romero is meeting with Stephen King and the stand is a big book. Mm-hmm. At the time it was released in 1978, it was 823 pages. He did an uncut version in 1990. That was something closer to 1200. So it was a huge book. So they're sitting there looking at it and talking about it and thinking, you know what? We are probably not going to get the kind of budget that we would need to actually do this story justice as a movie. And it wasn't until 1994 that The Stand got made. And even then that was another TV miniseries. So yeah, it was one of those things where they decided, all right, well, what do you want to do instead? George Romero had the idea for doing a horror anthology movie that would follow the history of horror movies. So like you'd have one of the segments be 1.33 to 1 black and white, like the old movies. Then you'd have, like, a big technicolor widescreen thing, like, you know, in the 50s, a 3D segment, all the way leading up to, like, the modern day. King said, you know what? Why don't we do something like EC Comics? EC Comics started out as education comics. Okay. (laughs) And uh, started by Max Gaines in 1944, and it was focused on education and kids-oriented stories. When Max died in a boating accident in 1947... Well, this is not a boat accident. Yes, it was. His son William took over and in 1949 and 1950 started a line of new titles and changed the name to entertaining comics. And the most notorious of these were Tales from the Crypt, The Vault of Horror, and The Haunt of Fear. They featured much more adult-oriented stories and gruesome artwork, especially for the time, you know, late 40s, early 50s. They were pretty incredible. And they drew a lot of heat and accusations about the potential for corrupting the youth. (laughs) And EC, on its own, was a huge reason for the creation of the Comics Code. So in 1954, EC stopped making the horror comics, and eventually the company was sold in the 1960s. William Gaines focused on another thing he was doing at the time called Mad Magazine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which started as a comic under the EC umbrella, and he remained the publisher of Mad until his death in 1992. So, yeah, Alfred E. Newman comes from all that stuff as well. All
1: right, I gotcha, okay.
0: So they decided, King and Romero, yeah, we could do something like that. How long would you need to write a script? Stephen King said, give me 60 days, and I'll get you a script. And on day 60, there was the script. Romero was a little hesitant about that because he had always written his own movies. But he also said, you know what, it's kind of a lot of pressure off of me. I don't have to worry about the screenwriting part. And, you know, one less thing to mess with. Sure. So I like that. And well
1: that, and it's Stephen King. So I mean (laughs) if you're gonna have somebody writing a horror movie for you, Stephen King's not a bad guy to go with. Yeah, that
0: would help you relax a little (laughs) bit. It's not like you gave it to Joe Blow. This guy kind of He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. A different format for him, but again, it's one less thing George Romero had to worry about. Like most of the Romero movies, Creepshow is filmed in Pittsburgh and surrounding areas, including Monroeville, which is where the mall from Dawn of the Dead was. Okay. is in Monroeville, PA. I suppose at this point, we'll get into the movie here itself. So we kick off the movie with a cold open, apparently at Halloween time, because, you know, the jack-o'-lantern in the window. Sure, sure. We've got Tom Atkins playing dad here, who's throwing his son's horror comic out because he really doesn't like it for some reason. Tom Atkins at this point had been in a couple of John Carpenter movies before this. He was in The Fog and Escape from New York, and he was the lead actor in Halloween 3, which actually opened just a couple weeks before Creepshow did. Oh, okay. He's from Pittsburgh and knew George Romero. The part he wanted to play was Geordie Verrill. Oh. But George Romero had to tell him, yeah, we've we've already got somebody for that part. (laughs) So, hey, you want to be the dad in in the wraparound? It's not a big part, but, you know, it won't take you very long to film. So here he is yelling at his creepy kid, and the creepy kid is Joe King, Stephen King's son. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. (laughs) Who is now a famous (laughs) horror writer himself, going by the name of Joe Hill. And watching
1: in the the opening sequence there, it's hard to tell, like, who's worse off, this dad who's being a complete dick, or the kid who's likewise being a complete dick
0: yeah the, the, the kid's kind of crazy he's creepy and it's like I no, wait a second dad your kid has all this horror shit up in his room are you really surprised he's reading a creep show comic book <laughs> it's
1: crap how's he reading this crap it's this shit's crap
0: <laughs> he called the shit poop <laughs> <laughs> Well, what's funny is Dad seems to know a lot about the magazine he just threw away. He's like giving all the spoilers as to what's to come. Right? He's talking about all the, the things that happens. Like, did you read this? Are you being a hypocrite? He then sits down and drinks a beer that's half beer and half foam. <laughs> yeah. So after he gets yelled at and smacked by uh, the old man, the kid is visited by the creep, which was actually made from a real human skeleton. It really? Came, it came in a box marked "Product of India." Don't ask. <laughs> But yes, they have, like, a real human skeleton that they added stuff to and kind of had on a a crane to make it look like it would float without you being able to see wires and stuff. Interesting. Then we get an animated sequence that takes us to the opening credits and introduces our linking device, the comic book itself. Now, the prop comic in the movie was drawn by Jack Kamen, who had worked on EC Comics back in the 50s. Now, I bet you're wondering, why are there four editors on this?
1: I wouldn't wonder that so much, because I'd never read into it or or paid much attention to to the details of the credits. But I expect to a certain extent, each of the sequences that were done in the movie
0: might have had different people involved in helping to make them. Check out the big brain on Brad. You're a smart motherfucker. That's right. In the case of the editors, it was because as they would film a sequence and finish it, they could then turn all the footage over to the editor, move on to film the next sequence, then turn it over to a different editor. You know, you keep them then. all working at the same time to get finished a lot quicker than if you just had one guy trying to put everything together. OK, I got usually, you. though, in a movie, if you see a movie has been edited by like four people, that's a bad sign. <laughs> <laughs> but in this case, it's OK, because it's like there are, you know, five sh- short movies, six if you count the wraparound story. Yeah, it would be pretty reasonable to have multiple editors working at it. And it kind of keeps production zipping along. So our first segment proper is called Father's Day. Now, what's interesting with the movie is because of the anthology style, unlike any other Romero movie to this point, they were actually able to get a lot of stars. Yeah, there were a lot of big names in this movie. And and the cast is an interesting mix. You've got like a lot of old pros and some younger guys on their way up. Mm -hmm. So in this case, Vivica Lindfors, who plays Aunt Bedelia, was in movies with Errol Flynn back in the 40s, doing swashbuckling pirate movies. She was like the queen sending him out to go explore whatever. And of course, then you got guys like Ed Harris who hadn't quite hit it yet, yeah. but the next year, 1983, he would be John Glenn in The Right Stuff, which really got him to take off. Right, yeah, going I was gonna say, this
1: was really early before he was, he hadn't yeah. quite broken as a star at this point. Yeah, yeah.
0: he had been in uh, Romero's previous movie, Night Riders, in 1981, which does not feature a talking car, it's something different. Well, no shit. Yeah, it was, it was next year where he got his big breakout role and has never really looked back. His wife, Cass, is played by Elizabeth Regan, who I can find no information about anywhere. Is apparently is the only movie she's ever been in, which oh, wow. is a, a shame because she kind of reminds me of Nancy Loomis in Halloween, and I kind of like that. This is the first time early on in the movie we see the comic book styles and transitions into the different scenes as they go along.
1: Yeah, yeah, as it's the comic book cell going into the next comic book yeah. cell like it's drawn.
0: What do you think? Is it Do they work or are they kind of annoying?
1: I kind of dug it I mean, just because it kind of keeps you in that feel of what this movie is inspired by. And, and kind of it kind of gives you the feel of, of what inspired this from the genre, from the old 50s pulp comics, the way that they were. And it, it kind of keeps you rooted in that as it unfolds. I think looking back on it now, 40 years later, it looks kind of chintzy and cheesy. But at, at the time, it would have been rooted in this medium that existed you know, 20, 30 years ago that now we're doing an homage to it and so it reminds you of all of that as you go.
0: It's certainly unique. I can't think of too many movies that have also done the transitions in a similar way. Certainly not before that. Right. I mean, and unless uh, it's
1: like a, a superhero movie that in some way is kind of doing even, something like that. Yeah, even
0: the superhero movies don't do that.
1: Right, right. Not that I can Something like of. out of Batman, you know, in the 60s. Spider-Man
0: on the old uh, electric company. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's it. It was something like that. So in this sketch, the family is giving exposition about Dotty, Old Aunt Bedelia's father having her boyfriend murdered and introduces us to the ashtray, which will appear in every other sketch in the movie. Oh, I totally missed that. Yeah. Really? Yeah. The ashtray that she bashes his head in with pops in in every other story. Some of it's real quick. I think there's just one of them where there's, it's like one shot real fast that you see it, but it shows up in every other sketch.
1: Oh, wow. I'll have to keep an eye out for that next time I watch yeah. it.
0: What's kind of strange is they call Bedelia the patriarch of the family.
1: Mm hmm. I mean, Cass hasn't told you about dotty old great aunt Bedelia, the patriarch of our clan. She'd be the, ma- the matriarch.
0: Yeah, are women the patriarchy now? <laughs> Did I miss something? Was this movie ahead of its time, or are, are women <laughs> men in this thing? Is that cultural appropriation? I don't know. <laughs> so, Bedelia goes to her father's grave on Father's Day, as she's done every Father's Day, which is also the day that she killed him. So she's out there getting crunked on JB and has the airing of grievances I got a lot of problems with you people <laughs> Now you're gonna hear about it <laughs> And we get uh, the flashback to her killing the old man who likes to scream and, and yell at her for his cake Day. Yeah. He
1: wants his cake.
0: Now I'm he's say, earned that cake. He deserves it. She seems to have a good reason for killing him. I mean, we talked about the morality of things with the blob, and I guess this isn't really a slasher movie, so maybe that doesn't count, but she seems to be the one person that has a, a legit grievance right. where maybe she shouldn't have killed him. But I understand. <laughs> More on that later. She pours one out for her homie by accident. <laughs> And her father comes out
1: of the grave and strangles her to death. Which is interesting, because if this has been an annual thing that's gone on for years and years and years, well, what's special about this year that now suddenly he's going to crawl out from the dead and and do her in?
0: She poured one out for her homie. Oh, okay. Maybe that's it. She never spilled the booze before. and That That was the magic ingredient. that, That got him going. In Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce, somebody spills whiskey on Finnegan. And he comes back from the dead and starts shouting about him wanting more booze. So I don't know if that's a Stephen <laughs> King thing where he's kind of winking and tipping his hat or if it's just somebody reading too much into it. But okay. That's one of those things that an English major dork would, uh, <laughs> would notice. You're a fucking nerd and no one likes you. Pretty cool makeup on the zombie. But, you know, Tom Savini did the effects, so what do you expect? Okay. I mean, you know, it's going to be pretty good stuff. Up next, we have the scariest scene in the movie, Ed Harris dancing. (laughs) And it's enough... I thought he was doing all right. It's enough to make Elaine Bennis blush. Are you kidding? (laughs) (laughs) He's got some moves.
1: Oh, he's pretty fly for a white guy.
0: (laughs) And the show has reached a new low. He said that, yeah, the biggest thing I remember is having to do some silly dance, and George was (laughs) no help at all with, how am I supposed to dance? I don't know, I I just do it. (laughs) The cook's name is Mrs. Danvers, and that's interesting because that was also the name of Dame Judith Anderson's character in Rebecca, the Alfred Hitchcock movie. Oh, okay. Not to be confused with her character from Star Trek III, the search for Spock, (laughs) where she was the Vulcan priestess at the end who brought Spock back to life.
1: Nerd!
0: There's all sorts of homages and Easter eggs. It would be impossible to list all of them, I think, in this. But there's all sorts of little nods to other movies and books and stories and whatnot so ed harris goes out for a smoke he goes looking for bedelia wanders into the cemetery and falls into the newly opened grave when he tries to drink joe booze rum
1: he's very bad
0: to steal joe booze he's very bad (laughs) or the spilled bottle of jb that should serve him right and then the headstone begins moving and he finds bedelia's corpse in the grave So this zombie can use the force or something because I thought at first he was pushing the thing over, but then you see him standing next to it. Right, right. And it just falls over and and magically crushes Ed Harris.
1: And and the interesting thing about that is he's lying there and he's like really, really slow and cautious. Like if I move too fast, I'm going to pull it down on me somehow. And you kind of think, why'd you just get the fuck out of there? (laughs) Move your ass, dude.
0: I don't know. Maybe it's one of those things where it's like, You've got the golf ball just on the edge of the cup, and the slightest vibration will knock it in, and he thinks it's something like that. And he was just a poor innocent bystander. It's too bad he got squished. Yeah, he married into the family. He didn't do this shit. It's not his fault. They aren't paying for a second song, so the first song is still playing, (laughs) and Cass is still dancing, and I'm okay watching her dance. Sylvia goes out looking for Ed Harris, except she doesn't really go out. She goes looking for him in the kitchen, even though he went outside. Well, I thought he, she went in looking... Uh, was she looking for him, or she was going in asking for... Oh, I'll go look for him. He's such a sweet boy. No, all yeah, right, all right, all right, all right. He does these impersonations. I swear, you would think it was the real people. So she finds the kitchen dark, and Mrs. Danvers dead before getting her head twisted backwards by the zombie. Damn, someone get this dude his cake. He really, really <laughs> wants his cake. So then the last two of them go looking for everyone else. And find that the zombie has got his cake, which is Sylvia's head on a platter.
1: I just want to know why. When every time they would go into the kitchen, and the lights are out. Why did anybody flip the light switch?
0: That's a good question. Did they not? They, I thought somebody went and flipped it, and it didn't. No, because because yeah, because no? both the times they go into the kitchen, well the lights are out. What's yeah. going on in here? And they just kind of stop and they like Gee, walk why is in this so really dark?
1: cautiously. But they, well,
0: turn on the lights. It's weird because uh, the stories in this thing are just about all of them are about revenge. Right. 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 I understand that you know the dude wants to get revenge on the person who killed him, but he was kind of a dick in life. Right, right. <laughs> so it's not as clear-cut a morality thing where whoever gets killed deserved it, in a way. I don't know. It's just a, a little bit different than the uh, slasher movie mentality. But the whole revenge motive is very much in line with EC Comics. Sure, okay. But I don't know. I thought, uh, I thought she was kind of justified in killing him. He seemed to be somebody you'd have a hard time living with. Yeah, you through some hell there, right? I mean, nowadays they'd make him president, but what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Here's my cake? You bitch. <laughs> Come on, man. Fuck you! You see now, bastard! So we move on to our next story, The Lonesome Death of Geordi Verrill. Which, in context
1: of all of the other stories, kind of stands out as not being linked to some kind of a revenge story, mm-hmm. where there's some kind of interaction between the characters that's driving... The story of what's going on. This is just some poor dude on his farm, minding his business, and oh, meteor hits.
0: That's weird. Yep. Yes, this one is uh, starring Stephen King himself. Now, the farm was built for the movie. Oh, okay. And it confused a lot of airplane pilots who were used to the empty field down there. They'd be flying along, and all of a sudden, oh, wait, there's a farm down here that looks like it's been there for years. And they're like, wait a second, this is where I'm supposed to make a particular turn, I thought. And it was confusing some of the guys that hadn't flown over in like a couple months or something. Oh, interesting, yeah. Building everything. And then, of course, it was torn down after production, which probably confused the last of them again. <laughs> <laughs> this particular story, some of them were based on stories that King had already written, and some of them were original to the movie. Right, right, now, right.
1: Yeah, I think I saw that this was uh, one of his short stories. Yes,
0: this one was uh, based on a story called Weeds that King wrote for Cavalier in 1976. Cavalier is a Playboy-style magazine, maybe one of the magazines under Dad's bed that the kid was talking about (laughs) in the beginning. So, Jordy is not too bright. Right. Uh, He burns his fingers on a meteorite that just landed. Romero had told King to play it like a cartoon character, so he dialed it up to 11. (laughs) Right. And uh, (laughs) he said that, you know, he kind of got a lot of heat from the critics. Like, well, this isn't a very subtle performance. And he's like, it's not supposed to be. Yeah, right, right. I wanted him to, to clown it up. And it's interesting. That
1: I think of the stories through this, this is the one that probably stands out to me the most that I remember as a kid. And I don't know why that is, because it's the story itself is pretty mundane and boring. It's just this dude, he finds the thing, and then it, it kind of proceeds from there. There's not a lot of interaction between characters, not a lot of witty dialogue or anything. But for some reason, this is the one that, Stands out in my mind more so than the others.
0: So he fantasizes about selling it to the college, which has a Department of Meteors. Department (laughs) of Meteors, yes. And he wants $200 for it, which is uh, $636.32 in today's funny money. (laughs) So even now, it's still not a lot, you would think, for an honest-to-God meteor. So we see that he has nasty blisters from where he burned his fingers on the meteor.
1: got meteor shit on his fingers.
0: Yeah, yeah. When he... uh, (laughs) When he dumps water on the meteor to cool it off, it cracks apart. And the meteor, now worthless, is filled with a blue liquid. And we get the line of the movie, Meteor (laughs) Shit! Which cracked my cousin and I up to no end back in 1983. (laughs) Meteor Shit! (laughs) So he goes back into the house, and he's watching the WWF. Bob Backlund versus Sika, a.k.a. Samoa Number 1. Uh. So you can hear Vince McMahon calling the matches. He's sitting there having stuff start growing on him. And meanwhile, out in the yard, there are strange plants growing everywhere and stuff is growing on his fingers. And he wants to call the doctor, but he imagines that the doctor is going to hack his fingers off. The doctor and meteor scientist, played by the same guy... His name is Bingo O'Malley. He was a local Pittsburgh actor. He also shaved his beard off and played Geordie's dad a little later in the sketch, too. So that's oh, the same okay, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as time passes, the plants grow on everything he's touched. This is one of the things where Tom Savini said he really liked working on Creepshow because it gave him a chance to do different things. Whereas, you know, working on the zombie movies and stuff, it's a lot of blood and gore and stuff, and this one gave him the chance to do, like, plant monsters, rotted flesh zombies, and things of that nature, all sorts of uh, a range of things to do instead of just one particular thing. And he said that all the effects he did on the movie were great except for anything he tried with Stephen King. Really? He said nothing worked with him. He was trying to do an effect that actually showed plants starting to grow out of his skin, and for whatever reason, he couldn't get it to work. He had contact lenses showing his eyes turning green from the plants, and Stephen King couldn't keep them in. Hmm. He didn't wear contacts, couldn't get them in his eyes, and that had to be scrapped. So everything else worked fine, except for whatever reason, nothing worked with Stephen King. The one effect that they did kind of have, it was his assistant that did it. Oh, Tom Savini just couldn't get stuff to work. Jordy draws a tub full of water and is warned by his dead father not to get in. But he gets in the tub anyway. And by morning, he is completely covered with plants. Now, what they did is the plant man was actually Tom Savini's assistant laying kind of against the wall with his legs like he was, the plant man is sitting, but the guy is like laying flat on his back. So it's really his legs. Then you got like the wall that the top half of the plant man is leaning against. The guy is laying flat underneath it. Okay. So the top part where he's going to get shot, he's trying to direct the shotgun without being able to see where I he's, gotcha, I gotcha, where he's okay. aiming. And they're telling him, no, a little bit more left, a little bit, no, up, up, okay. And he said every time they set the thing off, it caught the plant man on fire like every time <laughs> oh, he had to put it out. Well, what's weird is when he becomes the plant man, his voice is exactly the same as the corpse from the first sketch. Oh, okay. They, yeah. they sound identical. Please, God, let my luck be just this once. It's like they didn't change the uh, voice effect for some reason. So Jordy has said that he's had nothing but bad luck. But his luck is in as he shoots himself and it's like, wow, this got dark really fast. <laughs> <laughs> this is a story that had been played for laughs up to this point. It was right. kind of like just goofy with how stupid he is. And, and then just overnight. And meteor shit. And then it's like, okay, I'm going to off myself. And it's like, oh, God damn, that got dark. The news report in the morning says that there's plenty of rain on the way, which is good for the plants, but not for the people. Which brings us to our next sketch, something to tide you over. And this one is with a young Ted Danson. Yeah. And after seeing the movie at a cast screening, he was talking to George Romero and telling him, yeah, I just got this TV show about people sitting around in a bar or something like that. It's probably not going to amount to anything. <laughs> Cheers premiered in September of 82, which is about six weeks before creep show came out. Oh,
1: it premiered even before the movie came out.
0: Yeah. Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He saw like, they did like a assembly cut or something like that and ran it in the summer for everybody to see. And, uh, show ended up going for like what 12 years? I think it ended in ninety-four. He made something out of that show. So Leslie Nielsen was kind of in the middle at this point, transitioning from serious roles to comedic. This is after airplane, but before Naked Gun. Okay, yeah. So he's kind of in that stretch where he's starting to move along. It's one of those things where he kept people off balance on the set because he had like a little portable fart machine. (laughs) <laughs> that he would always set off, like they'd be out somewhere, and someone would come, Oh, Mr. Nielsen, nice to meet you all. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and then people would just be like, Oh, what the hell, dude? And he just thought it was the funniest goddamn thing. Now, this is an original story for the movie, but it has a little in common with another Stephen King short story called The Ledge. Okay. Which also features a rich, cuckolded husband who takes revenge on his wife's lover. And that story was put on screen in Cat's Eye in 1985. Oh, yeah, 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 I was going to say. Yeah, with uh, Drew Barrymore. Young yeah, Drew with James Barrymore. Woods. I think James Woods is in one of them. Was he the guy on the wedge? Yeah. Okay. Wrong! Been a while since I've seen that. But yeah, it's, it's sort of the same thing. The guy finds out his wife's been cheating, and he mm-hmm. gets revenge on the, uh, on the lover. But in this case, it's Leslie Nielsen taking Ted Danson down to the beach. He plays a tape for him where his wife is begging Ted Danson for help. Now, this was not filmed around Pittsburgh. This was filmed at a state park in New Jersey. And what's funny is, you get out there, it's supposed to be in the middle of nowhere, so they're actually filming at the beach, so the house you see in the background is actually a map painting. So they didn't have anything out there. This was like a state park, and they had this area cordoned off so that people wouldn't be going by, and they had... The crew was out there sweeping up all the footprints, had everybody marching in single file like the sand people to make it easier to to cover the tracks. So Nielsen forces Danson to bury himself neck deep in the sand before he can see his wife. It doesn't look like it would have been a lot of fun. No, not at all. He does seem to get a lot of sand kicked in his face, although a lot of it kind of disappears in between shots, which is nice. You know, they're like cleaning them up in between takes so he doesn't have to sit there and suffer with it. I mean, you got to balance continuity with taking care of your actors and not sure. making them miserable, especially when they got big clumps of sand in their ears and shit like that. But they, yeah, they had them like sitting in a chair in a big hole instead of actually standing. So you know, oh, okay. they were able to sit and chill out and That's interesting, they buried yeah. him up there. Wesley Nielsen brings down a TV and a shitload of extension cord. <laughs> so he can show on the TV his wife is also buried up to her neck. With the tide coming in, the wife is played by Galen Ross, who is the lead actress in Dawn of the Dead. And this was actually her final acting role, Mm. because she transitioned into directing after this. She'd only been in a couple movies. There was Dawn of the Dead, this, and one other one before it. When they did the remake of Dawn of the Dead in 2003, the Zack Snyder, they wanted her to come back and kind of have a cameo, because they got all the other actors that they could from that to kind of show up for little brief cameos and she didn't want to, so what they did is they named one of the stores in the mall Galen Ross. Oh, okay. Like it was a fashion designer or something like that. <laughs> what a story, Mark. So what they did with this, they made a wave machine for the actors. So that way they could film them further up the beach and not actually have to worry about the tide coming in. Yeah, sure. And hitting okay. them and then have to worry about if they could get them out of the hole fast not enough me. or something like that. It would have been a lot more dangerous if they had done that and probably would have taken a lot longer to film. Right. Ted Danson is forced to watch on TV until the water shorts it out. And he threatens Nielsen that he's going to get him. And it's really kind of cool and unsettling the way that he just looks directly at the camera. Right. And says he's going to come back and get him. And it's like, okay, that's kind of creepy.
1: And I think up to this point in the story, if you had done it a slightly different way to elongate it make it a little bit longer, this has got a very Edgar Allan Poe, Cask of Amontillado kind of vibe to it Mm -hmm. in terms of this revenge story and the way it's played out. It's just, this is dark on its own. And I think you could have cut it and ended it, you know, there. And it would have stood on its own in a completely different genre. Help! Yell all you want, Harry. Help! 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 Nobody's going to hear you, Harry. Nobody's going to hear anything. But now the fact that it continues on the way
0: it does is what makes it creep show now. Yeah. Yeah. The tide comes in and we get a shot of of Ted Danson's head completely underwater. They had his head in like a tank with someone giving him a scuba rebreather in between takes. Oh, okay. And Tom Savini was standing by with a sledgehammer because they had a vacuum system to get the water out as fast as possible. But if it didn't work for some reason, his job was to smash the tank with a sledgehammer to get the water out so that Ted Danson didn't drown oh, or something happened. And that's a cool shot too. That's another one
1: of the things that stands out to me that I remember watching when I was younger is this bit of his head underneath the
0: water and he's... And then the, the way the light, especially when like the kill sequences are in this thing where the... The red light, light kind of pops the lighting up. lighting behind, behind him them and yeah. they do like the comic book frame style with that sort of thing. I guess they couldn't do what they did in For Your Eyes Only. In the underwater water sequences in that one, the Bond movie, Carol Bouquet had trouble with her ears so she couldn't actually film anything underwater oh okay so what they did is they faked it they put in bubbles in post and had fans blowing her hair and then ran it at like slow motion oh really like her hair was floating in the water so anytime you see her and roger Moore underwater in that they aren't underwater okay close-ups and stuff but it probably would have cost more to process and more to do the effects and all that right instead of just actually putting them in a tank and giving them oxygen It's a cool shot, but it doesn't make sense. The water is obviously completely over his head. Yeah, right. He wouldn't still be... And as soon as the water's up over his nose, he would have drowned. (laughs) So it's like, you got another eight inches of water over (laughs) his head. Why is he still alive? So Nielsen goes back later to get uh, his TV and his VCR, but there's no body. I didn't quite get that bit that the body was gone and he he was expecting
1: to see it because... Here's the TV half buried in the sand. And here's this bucket that's half buried in the sand. Well, dude was buried up to his neck in the first place. So I would expect that the tide would have just buried him and he'd still be there. Buried. He didn't go try to dig in the spot where he was. He just, oh, well, there's no body here. He got washed out. Well, why would you think that? He's <laughs> clearly still buried
0: there. But or that's is just he? me. Or is he? <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't have thought that the tide would have washed him away. That was the whole point of you burying him is so he couldn't get out. Yeah, it's not like it's going to dissolve the sand afterwards, and he would be able to get out somehow. That night, they both come back as seaweed-covered zombies, and we get Dutch angles all uh, battlefield earth. Right. Except <laughs> I'll allow it because we're not doing it the entire movie, and it's one of those weird comic book. Exactly. Uh, and stylistically, you no, know, it makes sense. Weird. Oh my God, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. Where you're off balance yeah and now it's in line with batman yeah and and what they did it's one of those things where okay the stylistic choice oh uh,
1: yeah that's all right the thing about leslie nielsen here dude really did a good job like looking completely terrified that he's just this cool suave dude that the entire time keeping his cool and for him as an actor in this bit just completely losing his shit Mm. I, i thought he did a really great job
0: yeah What's interesting about this is though, even though George Romero created the trope of shooting zombies in the head to kill him, uh, it doesn't work on these zombies.
1: <laughs> They're already dead! To your point, yeah, all the zombies are already dead, but they make the point of saying, you can't kill us because we're already dead.
0: Yeah, that's because Stephen <laughs> King wrote him and not George Romero. <laughs> <laughs> they take him down to the beach and bury him up to his neck. He says he can hold his breath for a long time, but the look on his face at, at the, the end, end makes me think that he's not telling the truth. <laughs> All right, so we get on to our next story, The Crate. This is the story where eight-year-old G-Money Clip tapped out. Oh, really? (laughs) I was okay with walking corpses and meteor shit and seaweed zombies. This fucking monkey in this thing. Aw. Hell no. Hell no. Nope. Nope. I'm out. We got some cartoons or something we can watch. We got some Donald Duck. <laughs> I'm out of here. That was it. And I never saw, I know we we're getting ahead a little bit, but once the monkey shows up, I did not see the last hour of the movie. Oh, wow. Or however long it is from that point for a long time. So I had no memory at all of the fifth sketch because I had never seen oh, it that's awesome. for years. But uh, yeah, this is, uh, this is the one where I noped out. And you know why? Because you're a big, fat pussy. Now, this one is also based on a Stephen King short story. By the same name, which came out in 1979, published in Gallery, which is another porno mag. Now, the opening party scene was filmed in George Romero's backyard. Oh, okay. In the house he was living in in the uh, the Pittsburgh area at the time. uh, We get Adrienne Barbeau in this one. She wasn't sure about taking the part because she wasn't a drinker and didn't know if she could pull off playing drunk. She's like, I'd never been drunk before in my life. What do I, I don't know if I want to do this. Now, she was still married to John Carpenter at the time. Oh. So John Carpenter's like, you would be crazy to pass up working with George Romero. Are you kidding? And yeah, she ended up taking them part. (laughs) What's funny is you can see uh, she's complaining about something and she says something about that etiquette crotch. And you can see her mouth. She is clearly saying cunt, not Uh. crotch. (laughs) So they decided at some point, yeah, we probably better tone that down a little bit. (laughs) But you can see, yeah, her lips don't match the words, but you can you can read them. Her husband is poor, hen-pecked Hal Holbrook, yeah. who is famous for playing Mark Twain in a one-man show that he developed when he was a student at Denison. He did the show for over 60 years and finally retired it in 2017. Hmm. Now, he uh, at one point actually reached a point in life where he was older than Mark Twain was when he died, <laughs> and he was still going out there and doing his show amongst being in you know many, many other movies. Yeah, sure. Know, character actor and a ton of stuff. The whole thing kicks off when a janitor drops some change and finds a crate under the stairs dated 1834, and he calls one of the professors away from the party. And here we get the fun bit where Hal Holbrook fantasizes about killing his obnoxious drunk wife, <laughs> uh, shooting her in the head with what looks like a Smith & Wesson Model 29 Which is the same style 44 Magnum that Dirty Harry uses. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is also funny because he was in Magnum Force, the second Dirty Harry movie with Clint Eastwood. Intentional? I'd like to think so. (laughs) But, yeah, hey, nice shot, everybody. (laughs) Nice round of applause from the guests before getting snapped back to reality. (laughs) Poor guy. Horlick's University is actually Carnegie Mellon, no relation, in Pittsburgh. George Romero graduated from there in 1960, and Amberson Hall is actually Margaret Morrison Carnegie Hall. So they just changed the names a little bit. Well, no shit. But, yeah, it was all filmed at the school there. Okay. So the professor and the janitor take the crate out from under the stairs, and meanwhile, back home, Hal Holbrook fantasizes about strangling Adrian Barbeau with his tie. (laughs)
1: And sticking with that theme of how, kind of like back in the first story, this particular character is so obnoxious and so rude, driving the people around them to want to kill them. <laughs> yes, I'm getting the impression he doesn't like
0: her very much. Yeah. He's clearly <laughs> regretting his decision at this point. So as the professor and the janitor open the crate, the janitor sticks his hand in and is attacked by Fluffy Fluffy. <laughs> now, Fluffy is what they called the monster on the set. That's what is Tom okay. Savini and them they they nicknamed it Fluffy. And now, is
1: there is there any significance you're aware of of the date that they selected for the June 19th, 1834? No, not that I, I... looked it up. I didn't know if there's any historical
0: significance to the date. You probably should have researched this. Not that I saw. I think they just wanted something that's like it's really really old and this thing is somehow still alive. Yeah. Okay. And Tom Savini said that the monster should have been a lot skinnier looking back at it, he's like, yeah, we should have probably made the monster skinnier because it hadn't eaten for a long time. Right, right. But I thought it was pretty effective as it was. I got the hell out of there when that happened. I know that.
1: And you know why? Because you're a big fat pussy.
0: Yeah, it lifts the guy up with one hand into the crate and and, then, yeah, this thing scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. (laughs) So, many, many years later, I sat down and finished this. So, the professor's freaked out and runs into a grad student and tells him what happened. The grad student doesn't, believe him but sees the blood and thinks maybe the professor's the one that did whatever he's talking about. Right. And what's interesting here is that Fluffy pushes the crate back under the stairs. Yeah. I don't know why. Well I guess that's his home.
1: So I think when the professor comes in later, he makes the comment that oh this is where he was comfortable after because he was there Mm. for so long. He was going back to his safe place or
0: something. Yeah. That would make sense. The crate is back under the stairs But surprise, Fluffy's not in it. (laughs) And he attacks the uh, grad student after the grad student hit it with a wrench, which really just pissed it off. So don't hit it with a wrench. Right. And this is the piece
1: where, again, 40 years on, you go back and you watch this, that now looks cheesy as hell with the practical effects that they used at the time. But then would have been really kind of out there and on the edge of, oh, my God, that's gr- gruesome. How could they do that? And,
0: yes, it's very scary to an eight-year-old. I'll yeah. tell you that. <laughs> and you know why? Because you're a big, fat pussy.
1: <laughs> then you watch it now, and it's kind of like watching, you know, claymation or something, that is stop-motion stuff. That's like, oh, that's terrible. It yeah. that
0: looks horrible. I don't know. I, I, it looks all right. The grad student gets brutally mauled, and the professor runs away, going to Hal Holbrook's house for help. So he tells Hal what happens, he, he stays eerily calm through yes. the whole
1: telling. And, he's got his okay. uh,
0: his wheels are turning. He's thinking <laughs> of a plan. Hal drugs the professor and leaves a note for his wife. So he goes to college and does a Norman Bates cleaning up all of the mess that was left behind. And he left, left a note full of uh, salacious details to get Adrian Barbeau to show up down at the school. And he's just barely finished cleaning up when she arrives. And he tries to get Fluffy to attack her, and then he seems to snap. It's like he's he's losing his mind. He's yelling for this thing to, to come get her. And then after a while, when it doesn't, he seems to kind of come back to himself like, oh, maybe this is just a story. Maybe this didn't really happen. It's almost like he seems to regret it for a second. Mm-hmm. Until she starts hitting him and berating him, which reminds him of why he wanted to kill her in the first place. Right, right, right. And then Fluffy suddenly jumps out and gets her. So just tell it to call you Billy. Billy. <laughs> So yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't have appreciated the, uh, the, the humor of the sketch as much when I was a kid. All right. I know is that that fucking monkey had sharp teeth <laughs> and was scary as shit, and I didn't want nothing to do with it. And you know why? Because you're a big, fat pussy. Hal chains the crate back up again and uh, gets a nice scare as fluffy as aroused, starts shaking the crate, and then he drives it out to the quarry and chucks it into the drink. So Hal and the professor decide to keep quiet about the whole thing and sit down to a nice game of chess. Well, what if it gets out? And then it gets out. <laughs> well, if he breaks out of the crate, what in the hell is this thing?
1: It's it, something from the Arctic, because it was it was on the side of the box. It was an Arctic expedition. So it's like some abominable snowman or something that's been something brought back. But yeah, there, if you overthink <laughs> it, you kind of get lost in the, well, yeah, what the hell is this thing yes. that it was brought back from the Arctic, but has been fine and still remains alive in this box? That's been shoved under the stairs and locked in all this time that nobody knows anything about yet. If you overthink it, you kind of get lost in it. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it survived without food for almost 150 years. It doesn't drown, right? And who brought it back from Antarctica and just said, "Put it under the stairs"? There's a there's a prequel to be told here somewhere. What's, what's the point of bringing it back just to <laughs> shove it under the stairs? We need
1: we need Creepshow three to tell the the backstory on Too where late. this thing came from. We've
0: already had a Creepshow three. We'll get to that. Oh oh, I missed. oh I didn't know about that. Yeah, okay. at this point, I don't think we're ever going to find out. We are at the one hour forty minute mark of the movie. Keep that in mind. Okay. As we go to our last sketch here, they're creeping up on you. First off, the song on the jukebox playing as the sequence starts is the same song that plays over the end credits of The Evil Dead. Oh, interesting. Okay. It's just uh, at a different speed or something like that. And with all of the
1: music that plays on the jukebox here through this whole bit, I was kind of having the thought that in context, here when this movie was made, the music that he's listening to from the jukebox would be the equivalent to us now listening to stuff from the 80s. And I hate that thought. I hate that you brought it up. Why did you do that? <laughs> because if I had that thought, and I was miserable having that
0: thought, I had to share it with somebody else. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <You> jackass. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Upson Pratt is played by E.G. Marshall, a veteran character actor for many, many, many years. You probably recognize him as the President of the United States from Superman 2. Yeah, right. He plays a Howard Hughes-type germaphobe mm-hmm. who lives in the in a sterile apartment that is suddenly being infested by roaches. Lots and lots of roaches. Uh, he says his apartment costs $3,200 a month, which uh, in today's funny money, 10181 Nice, wow. So for this sequence, the production team found that if you wanted to get New York cockroaches, they were being sold for 50 cents a piece. Really? Yes, or $1.59 today a lot of cockroaches in this bit. Yes. (laughs) The 20,000 or so cockroaches they wanted would get expensive very quickly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they found it was cheaper to send two entomologists to Trinidad (laughs) and had them bring back about 18,000 roaches. Wow. Now, these roaches had their own trailer so they could be contained. They called it the Roach Motel. (laughs) That was all that was in there was the roaches. And, you know, they could feed them and take care of them and whatever and keep them away from the rest of the set. For most of the sequences that were shot on set, they used an empty school for a studio, kind of like Evil Dead 2 would do a few years later. When you film inside, usually your sets don't have ceilings because that's where your lights are. So the entomologist said, all right, put a lot of Vaseline at the top of the walls. So when the roaches get out, the lights will hit them, they'll scatter, they'll go running up those walls, hit the Vaseline, and they won't be able to get out. They'll just slide on back down. So they do the thing, they release the bugs, hit the lights, the bugs start running around everywhere, run up the walls, hit the Vaseline, and just kept on going.
1: <laughs> Uh-oh, spaghetti Oh,
0: <laughs> Yeah, they lost containment. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah. So, during the, uh, the sketch here, there's a blackout, and things go really wild. This is just, it's just a big bug story. In context... A lot of people would probably
1: be completely freaked out by this particular story compared to all of the others because the others kind of have that oh well you don't you know zombies aren't real this is just kind of scary fun stuff but bugs are a real thing the idea that you could be completely overwhelmed by an infestation of roaches like this this is now in the realm of possibility so I think there's probably a lot of people that are freaked out by bugs would be completely terrified
0: by this particular one See, I don't know, because, I mean, yeah, bugs are gross, but when are you ever going to see billions of bugs showing up? And that's what I don't get, is is why it happens. Sure, sure. Or how it happens. I understand that they're doing it because this guy's a germaphobe, and, like, the last thing in the world he wants to see is cockroaches, but mm-hmm. where do they all come from? Right. Was there, like, a curse put on him or something? He's on the phone with the—there's, like, a company he took over, and the guy killed himself, and his wife is on the phone, mm-hmm. and— did she put a curse on him somehow? It's not very clear as to right. you, why well, this is happening. Right, and that's where, happening.
1: in this particular story, the theme that kind of runs through all of the others of, hey, these people are kind of getting what they had coming because they're not very yeah. nice people. They're or comeuppance. Not, yeah, that here as he's hearing about this you know corporate takeover, that the guy from the company that they just took over killed himself, he's kind of happy about it. Oh, that's, yep. that's a shame. Yep. Too bad. Yep. So, yeah, he's kind of that and the way he treats everybody through the whole bit. Well, you're not too heartbroken over the fact that he's, you know, chewed up by all these bugs at the end.
0: <laughs> no, no. Anyway, yeah, he goes into his sealed panic room, but the roaches get in there, too. And the the bugs burst out of his body in a giant gross-out effect. They had uh, the mock-up of him, and they needed something real thin for the roaches to get to, and they kind of shoved them all out. So they had tissue paper that they sort of covered with a little makeup to make it look flesh-colored. Okay. So when they were able to, like, rip out of there, and then, of course, they got, like, the fake blood that wet the thing, and then they got the roach footprints and stuff all over the place, and...
1: And then that final shot of the room just being filled half up the the glass with all these bugs.
0: Yeah, now, the production had to fight for this last segment because they were a little bit over budget, but there were only two actors in the thing, and it's... Like a short sketch, it's only about 15 minutes or yeah. so. So they just went for it. And I kind of wish they didn't. At least it's short. To me, the last one is kind of a dud. Oh, okay. And, you know, the movie ends up being about two hours, which if you stopped it after the crate, that's an hour 40, a little wraparound. And you could probably have this thing done in an hour and 45 minutes. Right, right. With the with the wrap-up and all Maybe that. Maybe this was it. a little
1: too much. I, I, I think it's a niche thing, kind of like, you know... Guys that have a phobia of bugs are going to be completely
0: terrified. Everybody
1: else, maybe not so much.
0: I suppose. I mean, if they had done spiders instead of roaches, I probably would have been like, Jesus
1: Christ, no thanks. (laughs) And you know why? Because you're a big, fat pussy.
0: Yeah, to me, this last one's kind of meh. So then we get our epilogue, where two trash men, one of them is Tom Savini, the guy with the mustache, find the thrown-out comic book. Then there's an ad for a real voodoo doll, but it's already been sent away for The creepy kid has it and gives his dad a pain in the neck. <laughs> and we wrap up. Right That's on. it. Do you got anything before we go to the aftermath? Of all of the
1: movies we've done here, this one stands out as not necessarily being a quote unquote bad movie.
0: Oh no, no. I didn't I don't think movie it's, at all. You
1: know, it's more in in hindsight of the forty years that have passed between when it was made and now to kind of compare it to modern filmmaking and how something like this would be done today with computer effects and AI and all the stuff that's coming along now that would be able to take a lot of these sequences and make them look more realistic or more gory in a a particular way that now at the time, the practical effects that they used, you kind of look back on. It's not so groundbreaking as it was at the time to have the effect on it that it would have. I mean, unless you're eight years old, but (laughs) compared to everything else it's it's not something you know this is one that we've seen before we'll watch it now and it's you know halloween comes around this is on the shelf of oh let's watch creep show and you yeah. kind of throw it in and it's not something that you're going to watch and go oh i can't believe i'm spending two hours of my life watching this to do a damn podcast this why am i being tortured this way this is you know yeah. this one actually is not bad
0: yeah i didn't hate this movie at all i thought it would be good for uh, a <laughs> A Halloween thing. And that's the thing with anthology movies is if there's a particular sequence that you don't like, you suffer through it for a few minutes and then you're on to something else right. that you probably like better. But that's just kind of how it goes. So, the aftermath. Creepshow opened November 10th, 1982. Well, after Halloween. That's, yeah. that's
1: interesting timing on that.
0: Yeah. Why so late? Yeah. Well, they wanted to avoid competition with the aforementioned Halloween 3 season of The Witch. Oh, okay. That movie opened October 22nd. A horror movie in November. Did it work? Well, yes. Because Halloween 3 kind of burned out pretty quickly. It's the only one that didn't have Michael Myers. Mm -hmm. People saw it, said, what the hell is this? (laughs) Didn't know what to make of it. And it just sort of dropped off pretty fast. So Creepshow opened its first weekend at number one. The only movie in George Romero's career that opened at number one. Ah. The only number one movie he ever had. It beat First Blood and ET but ET was in its 23rd week. Oh, so, well, <laughs> it had been out a little while at this point. Opening weekend making 5.8 million dollars, which would be about 18.4 today. The budget was about 8 million or 25 and a half. So, it finished with a gross of 21 million or about 66 million today. So, it did turn a decent profit. It was a financial success, although I'm wondering again, uh, an anomaly from our, our the type of yeah. stuff that we're usually looking at. I'm just wondering though if they couldn't have gotten it out and just said the hell with it. We're putting it out a week before Halloween. hmm Halloween 3, that is. Put it out like October 15th and see what it would have done if it wouldn't have done better. Right. I think they were just thinking that it was going to be a... If they did open, then the next weekend Halloween 3 would have just blown it away and then maybe it doesn't recover. But it just drives me nuts when you have a horror movie and you open it in November. Yeah. I remember when I was working at the theater in Westerville, there was this movie in, I think it was in 96, called Bad Moon. It was a werewolf movie. Okay. Opened November 1st. Okay. <laughs> really? I mean, what's the point? And I'm trying to remember when Scream came out. Maybe they were worried about Scream. Didn't want to bump up against it. But okay. it didn't make a nickel. Not Scream. Bad Moon didn't make a nickel. But November 1st, you're killing any chance of anybody wanting to see yeah, a right. werewolf movie in November.
1: Well, it's like now here we have the this new Exorcist movie that's
0: coming out right here leading up to Halloween here in yep. October. And they had Saw X the week before that. Right. So they know now, shovel them out in October and see what happens. Maybe somebody sees one and then goes to see the other. There's dollars out there to be made with them, but I don't know. It did all right. It did fine. It made its money. Anything that makes, you know, almost three times its money is doing okay. And earned a sequel. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing about Creepshow is it's more like what came after it. It's legacy. Now, it didn't, obviously didn't invent the horror anthology. There had been other movies before it that goes all the way back to like nineteen nineteen in German cinema when they first started doing horror anthologies. But I think it did probably kick it off a little bit that for a while it was very popular because after this they revived Twilight Zone. Yeah, Twilight Zone came back, but it also led directly to a show called Tales from the Dark Side. Right, right, right. Which was George Romero. He couldn't call it Creep Show. Yeah. Because Warner Brothers had the rights to the creep show name. Okay. So okay. he just did the same sort of thing, called it Tales from the Dark Side. And that ran for four seasons from 1984 to 1988. And then, when did the Tales from the Crypt series start up? Because
1: that's another one that I remember popping up on HBO. Yeah, that that would have have been been, mid 80s after this.
0: Yeah, that was probably like late 80s, like 89 maybe. Oh, was that far after? I think it was more based on the EC Comics, but it wasn't like directly Creepshow related. It was like the more official EC Comics type thing, Tales from the Crypt with the Crypt Keeper and all that. Now, Creepshow did get a sequel, as you had mentioned before, mm-hmm. Creepshow 2, in 1987, directed by Michael Gornick, who is the cinematographer on the original Creepshow. George Romero wrote the script for that one, which was also based on stories by Stephen King. Yeah. They only did three stories a second time around, and it was about a half an hour shorter. That one cost about $3.5 million to make, or almost $9.5 million today, and earned $14 million, 37.8. So, so not as
1: much of a profit, but still turned a profit. No,
0: no, it, it performed decent. It got bad reviews, though. It was yeah. not not as critically acclaimed as the original.
1: Which is interesting, because I have this odd memory now where I conflate the two with the hitchhiker story that's in Creepshow 2. Yeah. I keep thinking it's in this movie, but it's not, because that's the one that's always kind of stood out to me. I mm. really kind of thought it was creepy that the lady comes along, accidentally hits this hitchhiker on the road, and then the rest of the story is him constantly popping back in. And terrorizing her. Thanks for the ride, lady. Yeah, that's uh, thanks for the ride. And it just keeps getting more and more gruesome as it goes. That's the one that I <laughs> out of the entire between the two movies, the one that stands out to me.
0: Yeah, that's uh, Lois Childs from Moonraker. Yeah, is uh, the lady driving the car there. Your powers of observation do you credit, Mr. Bond. So, Taurus Entertainment bought the rights to the creep show name and they put out Creep Show 3 in 2006.
1: Okay, see, I completely missed this.
0: Yeah, uh, had no involvement from either George Romero or Stephen King, and was released on HBO in 2007. Okay. And was panned by critics with a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, wow. So, lucky we didn't watch that one. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking thing sucks! But there is now also a creep show TV show. Okay. Uh, that started in September of 2019 on the Shudder streaming service, which is owned by AMC, the TV channel, not the gotcha. movie theater chain. Greg Nicotero from KNB Effects was the uh, producer and director on that show and has done a pretty good job with it. It's got a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, 7.7 out of 10 average reviews, so it's doing pretty good. It's about to start its fourth season uh, coming up here on October 13th. Yeah, it's definitely had a lasting uh, impact. Just for comparison, the original movie has a 6.8 on IMDb and a Rotten Tomatoes rating of 65%. Okay. With all that said, Thornton Mellon, would you recommend Creepshow? I recommend you stop being such a faggot. No.
1: Well, sure! Yeah, this is a good perennial, but like I said, pull it off the shelf when you're going to watch some scary movies around uh, Halloween time. But uh, What's your favorite story? What's your least favorite story? <sighs> That's tough. My favorite is probably one with Leslie Nielsen and, and Ted Danson, where he's, he's getting buried in the...
0: Something to tide you something over. Something to tide
1: you over, yeah, where he gets buried in the sand. Because again, it, it kind of it stands alone up to a certain point as just being a very dark, like an Edgar Allan Poe story. You know, you go and you get to this guy and you lure him out, you bury him in the sand, and then leave him there. And it's like, that's that's cool to me. That's like a dark, you know, yeah. macabre story, you know. That's that's like, oh, okay. Leave it there and you're done. So So I kind of dig that. Least favorite... It might, be, it might be Stephen King's bit with the, the meteorite, just because it stands out as, it's just odd. It's not gruesome. It doesn't have that same kind of, it's not zombies. It, it's not, you know, killer bugs coming in and taking over. It's not creepy, really. It's just weird. So the meteorite comes in, and then this, this stuff just starts growing everywhere. So. Meteor shit.
0: <laughs> he does these impersonations. I swear, you would think it was the real people.
1: So it's cool. I didn't dislike it. It, like I said, it's it's probably the one that, for whatever reason, stuck out visually in my mind. That he always got this stuff growing on his fingers, and then it's it's on his tongue as it's growing because he was sucking on his fingers. And then, oh no, not there! <laughs> so, so it's it's got some fun humor to it. It's cool, but it just, I think in context, that's the one that stands out to me. That's maybe the weakest of the
0: bit. Now here's the interesting thing because I remember you were thinking you didn't like the blob because it was more cheesy and not scary. <laughs> And this is a movie that seems to me like it's definitely more cheesy than scary. Yeah. Unless you're like an eight-year-old and you're terrified of a monkey with giant sharp teeth. And you know why? Because you're a big fat pussy.
1: That I think that's the thing with this movie is that when you think of the, your target audience and who would really appreciate this movie, it would have been made in 82, 83 when it came out. So it's being made for people who would have grown up with those pulp horror comics in the 50s and early 60s that now at this point they would have been kids reading that stuff and now they're growing up. So they're going to appreciate this movie that's now based on that genre. It'll kind of touch home for them. And even though it's kind of done in a cheesy kind of corny way to an extent, nostalgia kind of comes in and goes, Oh yeah, I remember reading those when I was a kid and they were terrifying and blah, blah, blah. So you got that. Or you've got your, you know, 8-year-old, 12-year-old kids catching this movie and being completely terrified by it because they don't know any better. And you know why? Because you're a big, fat pussy. So I think when you, when you look at it through a particular lens, it stands up that way. It's not so much just being made as a straight-ahead horror movie. It's being made with a bit of a tongue-in-cheek wink to these old pulp magazines. Number out of 10, what are you giving it? I'd go probably five and a half, six. It's it's not a, I mean it's not like great filmmaking per se. It's not like a great mo- movie that you just like oh want to give it accolades. But it's one like I said in the context of all the things that we've watched or reviewed, it doesn't suck. it's yeah. not something where you just watch this and going oh I, this was terrible. I never want to come see this again. This is <laughs> this has got legs. It's a perennial fun yeah. popcorn flick. Throw it in for Halloween and have some fun.
0: Yeah, definitely. This is uh, this is one of those things where yeah. Sit down and watch a scary movie. You can pop this in and it'll fit right in with your Halloween stuff. It's not too scary. Right. You know, you could probably show, I don't know if you should show it to an (laughs) (laughs) eight-year-old. That was probably bad judgment leaving the discs laying around, you know, when we were kids. But what are you going to do? In contrast with everything else that's modern today,
1: it's more probably some of the language and and overtones of things that... Some of this, yeah. I, th- I think by the time you're 12, 13 years old, you'd be able to watch this and probably laugh at it and have too bad of a time.
0: Yeah, I think in my case, like, see, I just would have made one change. I probably would have flip-flopped the Bug Story in the Crate. Yeah. and, and Make since, the Crate the big finish. Yeah, I think, because it's like, okay, we've already had a wrestling reference in here today, so it's kind of like when you go to WrestleMania, <laughs> the match before the main event is what they call the piss break match. <laughs> It's a match nobody gives a shit about. You just, hey, this is the time. We got Hulk Hogan versus Macho Man is up next. I'm going to go grab a beer, take a whiz, and I'm going to miss the Red Rooster versus Bobby Heenan because who gives a shit. (laughs) Then you come back in and you can settle in and watch the big finish. You want to end strong. Sure. And to me, I think flipping the bug story with the crate would have been the thing. You want to end on the scariest one. Yeah, right. You know, the last thing is like the monster breaking out of the crate. And then you can go into your your finish. I think I would have changed that around. I could agree with that. Yeah. I think my favorite story was the crate. I think that one's uh, that one's pretty cool. And then, like I said, the bug story just creeping up on you just didn't really do much of anything for me. I think if you had left that one out and just gone with four stories, it probably would have been better because the two hours kind of overstays its welcome a little bit. Sure, I could see that. And if you had it about an hour forty five, I think you know that's probably about the right length. But what do I know? <laughs> I don't know anything. But yes, this should be. Uh, Like you say, a perennial thing. You could pop this in on Halloween any year, and it's a pretty good time. I would also give this a pretty solid 6 out of 10. I like it! Okay, faggot, what's next? We got another coin here, and we're talking about another pair of movies. So we're talking about doing either the Dungeons & Dragons movie from the year 2000, or one of the ones I've wanted to do, (laughs) RoboCop 3, the one with samurai ninja robots. (laughs) from 1993 we got the old quarter here what uh what you want to be what Tales on dungeons and dragons Tales dungeons and dragons head robocop 3 all right here we go that is a tail Ooh! i oh, see you're excited about that one last time you were like oh man i'm bummed you just didn't want to watch the other two robocop movies to lead up to robocop 3 <laughs>
1: it's more whole work that way being a, a DD nerd Mm-hmm. I can like go into watching this Dungeons and Dragons movie knowing it's gonna be a bad time, but at least I've got some context for it that I can like still laugh at it. I don't know. I've never seen it, so this is an excuse. Well, then you don't I, know it's gonna be I, a
0: bad time. It might be okay. By word of mouth, I'm
1: taking it for granted yeah. that this is not gonna go well. <laughs> Fucking thing sucks!
0: No, well, I, I'm. But sure now you're it's an right. excuse
1: to watch a movie that I otherwise have been curious about, but have never taking the time out to give it a chance
0: all right so there you go up next whenever we can get to it will be dungeons and dragons with jeremy irons and thora birch from the year 2000 so until next time he's thornton mellon i'll see you and i'm g money clip so just kick back have some popcorn watch some movies and we'll catch you next time adios nachos